Our scripture reading, which is also our sermon text for this morning, is taken from the book of Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 8. You'll find that on your pew Bible on page 1063, though I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. I think it won't be too disruptive to you reading from the pew Bibles, NIV, uh, 1984. Acts chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. The first part seems to be associated with what came before. Let's pick it up in the second sentence. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. 
Let's pray together. God, our Father, we, we believe that there is power in your word. We believe that there is power in your spirit. Indeed, they are the same power. For you, God, are one true and living God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And while you are distinct in your personages, you are united in your purposes, in your action, in your power, and in your love. So we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us here by your powerful word and spirit because of your great love and because of our great need. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Mark. If you have your Bible still open to Acts, I'd encourage you to keep them open. We will be... Um, making a bit of a survey from at the beginning of our time together this morning. Let me just pray again before I start. Open our eyes, Lord, that we may see wonders out of your law. Open my lips that I may declare your glory. Empower me by your spirit. Amen. We all sometimes wish we could go back and see how people lived in a simpler time, don't we? Of course, none of us would want to stay there for too long because we like the familiarity, not to mention the conveniences of our more comfortable world, even with all its complexities. It's especially tempting for those of us in the church to try and reconstruct some pristine moment in the life of the church. We imagine that if we could just bottle or imitate what the apostles in the early church did, that the church in our day would be more devoted, more obedient, more pure, and perhaps even able by God's grace to enjoy some of that colossal success that they did. But one of the things that the text that Mark just read for us reveals is that the life of the early church was actually kind of messy. When we go back and actually read the text of the book of Acts carefully, we can't help but be struck by a couple of things. One, how different it is from our day, from our day-to-day -day experience. And secondly, and this is at least as interesting to me, is how unique each experience within the book itself is from all the others. This is especially true of something that we would think should be fairly uniform, the outward process by which people come to faith in Jesus and are then incorporated into the assembly, otherwise known as the church. In fact, one of the main things Acts attempts to do is to resolve 
the first internal dispute that the early church had to deal with. At its most basic level, that dispute was about who would be allowed entry to the fellowship, who was a real Christian. Resolving that conflict means at least that we have to carefully read the entire book of Acts and pay special attention to just this moment in the life of each new believer as it's related to us. The puzzling thing is that while there are common elements in each conversion story, what each of those elements looks like, that is how it's described, and how each element is combined with the others is usually unpredictable. The elements themselves are well known to us. Belief, baptism in water, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. By belief, the Bible usually means something more than merely accepting the bare facts that Jesus existed, that he died, and that he rose again. It even means more than admitting that he is God. Belief means trusting in what the bare facts point to. It means having a powerful conviction of your own sin and your utter need of a Savior, as well as trusting in Jesus Christ and his work to provide for that need. That's why the words belief or believing are often replaced in the book of Acts with the words salvation or being saved. Well, regarding baptism in water, it's pretty safe to assume in the book of Acts that it's exactly the practice that we looked at last week, what Jesus asked John to do for him in Matthew 3, to be immersed, and probably immersed in whatever river was most convenient. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is something more mysterious and I'm going to come back to it in a minute. As I said, when Acts speaks of conversion, it always refers to belief or salvation in some way. But even here, there's a lot of variety in the words and phrases that it uses. If you turn to Acts chapter 2, the first new believers, who are a massive group of about 3,000 people, are described with especially colorful language. First, they are cut to the heart by Peter's words. Then they received his word. And finally, after they were baptized, it says, their souls were added to the number. Later on in chapter 6, after Philip, along with Stephen and some others, were appointed to their important ministry of mercy, coordinating and distributing food, Acts uses a word that emphasizes the devotion and learning that characterize the new believers when it speaks of them in a very familiar word as disciples. There in chapter 6, we're also introduced to a unique phrase, many priests became obedient to the faith. Then after our text in chapter 8, when it's talking about the Ethiopian eunuch, Acts doesn't say that he believed anything or that he was saved. It just tells us that he asks to be baptized. Philip consents. Then he rejoices. And the book leaves 
it up to us to fill in the blanks about what happened. Similarly, in chapter 9, we're told not that Paul believed or was saved, but that something like scales fell from his eyes. And then later on in that chapter, in less vivid but no less exciting language, the summary statement towards the end of the chapter tells us that the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, multiplied. A few verses on, we find people turning to the Lord. All these different words and phrases to describe something that we would say is the same thing. On and on, and it's different all the way to the end of the book. Acts uses no formula, no formulaic language to describe what God does in the hearts of his people. And likewise, there is variety even in the order and the timing of the baptism with water and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. For instance, on Pentecost, Peter tells the new believers to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, implying that those baptisms would be practically simultaneous, the baptism with water and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it seems that that's exactly what happened. They were baptized with water and baptized with the Holy Spirit, although it's worth noting that we're not told that the 3,000 new believers began to speak in tongues as the 120 believers did at the beginning of the chapter. And in our passage, the one that Mark just read, the people of Samaria believed. They were baptized, and then what? They had to wait. They had to wait for Peter and John to come up from Jerusalem to pray that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Later on in chapter 10, we read about the house of Cornelius, the household of Cornelius. And here the process wasn't just extended as it was in Samaria. The process was completely flipped. First, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And then Peter said in amazement, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And now there's the serious question about just what the baptism of the Holy Spirit looked like. I think we often assume, probably because we've now been under the influence of charismatic theology for well over a century, that every fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit had a similar appearance to Pentecost. It's certainly possible that it did. Two other times, the household of Cornelius that I just mentioned, and later on with a dozen or so men that Paul encountered in Ephesus who had previously only been baptized into John's baptism, that's in chapter 19, we're told that the baptism of the Holy Spirit came with an experience of speaking in tongues. But it seems more likely to me that Luke, the author of Acts, who we know to be a very precise reporter, deliberately chose this great variety of words and phrases to summarize with the utmost fidelity a great variety of experiences. In other words, Luke faithfully and efficiently recorded only the most conspicuous and characteristic details of each episode. In other words, each baptism of the Holy Spirit by the Holy Spirit was unique 
Luke didn't plumb the depths of language out of an aesthetic desire not to be repetitive. He took the information that was available to him or that he observed himself and, enabled by the Holy Spirit, strove to communicate the essence of each moment. The moments that that same Holy Spirit made each one alive in Christ. All that said, my purpose is not to antagonize or provoke those who have a more charismatic theology than mine. Instead, I'm just... First of all, trying to point out this astonishing variety in the conversion stories. Since it should reassure us, especially when our story of how we came to Christ is not exactly the same as anyone else's. But there's another thing, something that's clear from our text in chapter 8 of Acts, and also many others, that the essential thing about conversion is this baptism of the Holy Spirit. So let's turn there right now, Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Remember that in Acts, this is the first account of the gospel being shared outside of Jerusalem. Everything up to this point talks about what was happening in Jerusalem. Fleeing persecution in Jerusalem and obeying Jesus' command just before he ascended to heaven, Philip goes to Samaria. He takes the gospel to the Samaritans. We're told in verse 5 that Philip proclaimed the Christ faithfully and forcefully there. It seems that God worked powerfully through him, healing in astonishing ways and dramatically delivering those who were in bondage to evil spirits, verse 7. In verse 12, Luke further encourages his readers, telling us that the people of Samaria believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't long before, verse 16, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the baptism with water. And the great signs and miracles continued even after the people believed and were baptized. But something was wrong. Something was missing. The apostles Peter and John were dispatched from Jerusalem. They came to pray that God would fix a situation that, as far as we know, the apostles had not encountered up to that point. Despite the drama of the miraculous, despite the fact that the Samaritans had accepted, received the word of God, we're told that the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. Philip was certainly seeing much to be thankful about, People paid close attention to what he said. And as they paid close attention to what he said, that diverted them from this medicine man with a massive cult following known as Megale, the great Simon. What's more, this friendly neighborhood superhero celebrity, far from grudging Philip his success, lent his own personal seal of approval to Philip's ministry. He himself not only believed and was baptized alongside the other women and men of the city, 
But the text tells us he followed Philip everywhere. The whole city, we're told, was filled with joy. So what was troubling Philip? Can you imagine any revivalist preacher questioning these kinds of tangible results? Any church growth guru doubting these metrics? But you see, Philip wasn't that kind of man. Philip was no fly-by-night faith healer. He was no scheming Svengali. He realized that something was off. Something about this whole scene was perplexing him. He had spent a lot of time with the widows in Jerusalem, who were utterly destitute, but filled with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit himself. In the midst of all the wonders he worked and witnessed, in the midst of the gratitude and the the sheer joy he felt in proclaiming the gospel, he couldn't perceive the Holy Spirit in these enthusiastic Samaritans. But what was it that he was looking for? Something more obvious than instant healings and violent exorcisms? Was he looking for something more joyful than the thrill the people had already expressed? More devotion? An evil sorcerer had changed his ways and now followed him around like a lapdog. Was it just that there wasn't this outpouring of tongues that he'd seen on Pentecost? That certainly isn't obvious from the text, since nothing like that is mentioned when finally, as Luke puts it rather plainly, they received the Holy Spirit. But when the Holy Spirit did fall, whatever that looked like, his power was startlingly obvious to the great Simon. It must have impressed him even more than the healings and the exorcisms that he'd witnessed already, since it wasn't Philip that he tried to buy off, but Peter and John, for what they accomplished through simple prayer and the laying on of hands. This showman shaman thought he understood power. He was a master of spectacle, able to attract a large following using various tricks, the dark arts, and the force of his personality. But this power, this power was something different. It was a power he knew he couldn't imitate. This baptism of the Holy Spirit thing was a game changer. He could see the transformation in people. This Holy Spirit changed them completely from the inside out. And Simon, the power-hungry power monger, desperately wanted to be able to dispense some of that power himself. Well, to merely humanize, it seems obvious Greed and ambition are what show Simon up for a fake. And yes, on the surface, greed is what was wrong with Simon's heart. But Simon's ambition would certainly not have escaped Philip's experienced eye before that moment. He certainly knew about it, but he also knew that Simon could be delivered of it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice later on how deeply 
Peter's spirit-enabled response to Simon's business proposition delves into the darkness of Simon's heart. Peter is given divine insight that goes farther than Simon's ambition and greed. And if you think about it, this insight, what was missing in Simon? What was previously missing in the others? Reveals the essence of what it really means to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. In verse 20, Peter says, May your money perish with you. Verse 21. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right with God. Verse 23. For I see that your heart is full of bitterness and captive to sin. Simon's greed was the problem. Simon's greed was the symptom, I should say, that revealed the main problem. His heart was still captive to sin, still full of bitterness. His greed was the symptom that revealed a heart that was not right with God. It revealed a heart that had pledged to trust in Jesus, but continued to trust in itself. A heart that claimed to have been put to death in Jesus, but in reality was unwilling to part with success and reputation. A heart that aspired to new life in Jesus, but clung stubbornly to its own standard of living. A heart that paid lip service to being united to Jesus, but kept its options open in case a better suitor came along. What Simon didn't understand, what we often don't understand, was that the gift of the Holy Spirit means before anything else to be given the very spirit of Jesus Christ himself. This was the perplexing lack in all the Samaritans that had bothered Philip before Peter and John arrived on the scene. For all their intellectual belief, for all their outward deliverance, for all their joy, they didn't seem anything like his beloved Jesus. Philip was looking for this resemblance to his Lord, this gentleness, that kindness, that humility, that self-sacrificing love. If you skip down a bit, the striking contrast with Philip's very next encounter also suggests this. For after Simon, Philip came across a no less powerful man but he was someone who was completely unlike Simon the Great because he was a man, this Ethiopian treasurer, who embraced the suffering servant he was reading about in the book of Isaiah. 
Here was a man that Philip, despite his recent debacle with Simon and the Samaritans, had no hesitation to baptize. Here was a man who was so obviously filled by the Holy Spirit that Luke doesn't even bother to say he was. Did Philip baptize the Samaritans prematurely? If so, we can't fault him for it. He wasn't being reckless. It seems that when Philip arrived in Samaria, he was just following the pattern that he had known in Jerusalem. Since the instructions that Peter had given on Pentecost were, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But in Samaria, things no longer seemed to work that way. The people had believed, at least they gave assent, to what Philip preached. So Philip went ahead and baptized them. Yet unexpectedly, the Holy Spirit was not given. Philip knew that the Holy Spirit had not yet come to them because their hearts didn't bear any likeness to Jesus' own heart. But Philip didn't despair. He understood that it is God's prerogative to work in his own time according to his own purpose and plan. And as far as we can tell from the rest of the Acts accounts of conversion, from this, on, this point on, things actually were different than they had been at the very beginning. And they remained different. After those early days in Jerusalem, baptism with water usually came only after a clear indication that the Holy Spirit had been given. The most obvious example is this episode I talked about in Cornelius's household. Even while they listened to Peter speak, the Spirit fell. This is the Spirit who makes us like Jesus. This is the Spirit who makes us want to be like Jesus, even. So after this experience in Samaria, before they would baptize with water, they looked for the presence of the Holy Spirit because they recognized that he was the seal and the guarantor. He was the indicator of true belief, of real trust, of a heart melted, convicted of sin, transformed by love, united to Christ and bearing an unmistakable and growing resemblance to Jesus himself. And then came baptism with water. Well, you may be wondering if I am ever going to get to baptism. I am now. And I hope that even though I've approached it from the side rather than head on, the reasons that we here at Bethesda practice what is known as believer's baptism by immersion have already been suggested. But turn with me now to Matthew chapter 3. This is the passage that we read last week and studied last week. Matthew chapter 3, and I'm going to read only this time three verses, 13 through 15. Matthew 3, verses 13 through 15. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Righteousness. 
Then John consented. One of the things you must notice is that in this very first Christian baptism, the baptism of Jesus Christ, a baptism which, as I noted last week, was a prophetic sign that Jesus undertook to fulfill all righteousness, as he says here. There's already a kind of tug of war going on, isn't there? And maybe this is comforting to us, given the fact that over at least the last 500 years, baptism has been the source of sharp, even violent disagreements. Even as it was being defined, at this very moment, there was a deep concern on John's part that it was being improperly done. The English words that we have in our Bibles are actually milder than what we find in Greek. Where it says in the ESV, John would have prevented him. It really is John actively hindered Jesus' request. He was bewildered. He was determined to stand in Jesus' way, to to bar his path. And Jesus' response to him, while gentle, was very forceful. What we have communicated in five English words, let it be so now, is in Greek, one short command, just two little words, afes arti, something like give way this instant. Give way this instant. But Jesus was not criticizing John's vigilance. He was rather asserting his authority. John was right to be standing guard, but the king that John had been predicting for a long time was now standing before him, and he clearly expected to be obeyed. At the same time, as we saw last week, Jesus didn't demand blind obedience. He offered John an explanation of what he was commanding him to do. Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. But John also did more than passively give way. Because baptism requires two people. The one baptizing and the one being baptized. Baptism by immersion is a very physical, uh, considered a careful act. Consenting to baptize Jesus meant that John had to actively lead him, inviting Jesus into the water, drawing him close. If it was done the way that we do it, he even cradled Jesus in his arms. Or maybe Jesus knelt down into the water himself. Either way, John knew that to baptize Jesus meant to care for him perhaps to speak words over him, to help him through it, to intimately preside over every moment. Can we perhaps begin to understand his reluctance to do so for the creator of the universe? And Jesus understood this. If John had refused... Jesus wouldn't have gone under the water just by himself. He deliberately chose John. 
By his command, he gave permission for one who considered himself unworthy to carry his stinky sneakers to lead him. This is why Jesus emphasized not that his baptize was fitting for him to fulfill all righteousness. He said it was fitting for them to fulfill all righteousness together. What else does all this tell us about our baptism here at Bethesda? Well, our statement of faith and our constitution, these are the documents that detail our common agreement about the scripture, and it's an agreement with those who are among us and an agreement with those who've gone before us. And they set forth a rich and generous understanding of the practice of baptism. They speak of baptism as an act of obedience, since God calls all believers to follow Jesus in it. They also refer to it as an act of humble submission to God, an act of personal repentance and faith. Speaking denominationally, they are Baptistic, in that they call baptism an ordinance, which is a reminder of our shared union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and also a proclamation of our death to sin and resurrection to newness of life in Christ Jesus. Those are direct quotes. But by contrast, our statement of faith also talks about baptism using something that approaches what we call sacramental language. And it calls baptism a visible sign of God's grace. These sound very weighty, these words, but they're matters. Baptism is a matter that carries the weight of God's eternal purposes, the weight of salvation history, the weight of God's glory. But there's another thing that's interesting in, in, in our Constitution, because as a church that officially considers itself, as the Constitution says, our Constitution says, we are an evangelistic, evangel sorry, evangelical association, which is not affiliated with any denomination, Bethesda's documents are deliberately written to be broad enough to allow for disagreement on some of the issues concerning baptism. As they're also charitable in consideration of the lived experience of those who join us from other places and traditions. So as I put it in the bulletin, all this means that at Bethesda, to baptize faithfully requires vigilance, wisdom, and most of all, grace. First, baptizing faithfully requires vigilance. In other words, insisting on baptism, especially believers' baptism, means that the baptizer needs to be paying attention. First of all, attending to the meaning of baptism itself, but also knowing the person who has come to be baptized well. 
This is not only so that they can make a credible public profession of faith by affirming a handful of straightforward theological questions. It is so that the baptizer, which in Bethesda's case is usually a pastor or an elder, so that the baptizer is confidently able to satisfy their own questions about the person they're baptizing. The biggest question being, have they been baptized with the Holy Spirit? In other words, do they resemble Jesus in any way? Do they look more and more like him the more we walk with them? Has Jesus, has the Holy Spirit of Jesus enabled them to understand that they are sinners in need of a savior? Will this understanding be an ongoing realization? Have they truly trusted in Jesus? Will that trust continue in a lifelong journey of repentance and faith? These kinds of questions are never going to be automatically satisfied through a class that teaches about the meaning of baptism, as good and helpful as such a class might be. No, ideally, this kind of confidence will be gained over time, discerned through a discipling relationship. So our process here at Bethesda is necessarily somewhat ad hoc. There are obvious organic limits of age and circumstances, of course, but navigating these limits, too, requires that we recognize that each person is unique, a complex creation loved by God who has a trajectory and a personal story that is ordained by him. And that may look very different from the story of their friends. But this lack of a formal process, this reliance upon the vigilance of the baptizer's personal judgment, though it's enabled by the Holy Spirit, leaves the baptizer vulnerable to criticism. It's inevitable. Things can get messy. This is especially true when something seems unfair or out of the ordinary. And we would be the first to admit that we sometimes get things wrong. Philip and the other leaders in Acts that Acts records as baptizers certainly would not be accused of being overly cautious. <laughs> Nevertheless, history records that after that first generation of new believers, longer and longer terms of discipleship became the norm prior to baptism. This was probably provoked by the shock of seeing previously baptized people turning their back on faith due to the heavy persecution that they faced. Similarly, in Canada, we are well into a time when Christian faith is routinely rejected and held up to ridicule. Increasing numbers of churchgoers, baptized or not, are abandoning their previous commitments. At the same time, a lot of impatient and unscrupulous church leaders following aggressive church growth models and obsessed with numbers often point superficially to examples in the book of Acts to justify their own neglect and mock any stick in the mud committed to vigilance. They blithely baptize people en masse with no clue about their true spiritual state, and they make no attempt whatsoever to disciple them. 
this has been and will continue to be disastrous for the church at large over the long term. Baptizing faithfully requires wisdom. Wisdom. Among other things, baptism means navigating really hard questions like, when would, you recommend, when would we recommend baptizing someone again who already considers themselves to have been baptized? In the story we read today, there's no indication that anyone was baptized again after the Holy Spirit had come. But on the other hand, in chapter 19, in one of the other stories I referenced about Paul and the dozen disciples in Ephesus, Paul did indeed immerse them again. When it became clear to them that they had only been, well, when it became clear to Paul that they had only been baptized previously into John's baptism, Paul felt it was necessary to baptize them in the name of the Lord Jesus. So sometimes there are cases where people can be baptized again, and other times not. There's a certain irony that Baptist denominations are often the most heavily invested in maintaining the outward forms of baptism. Since they officially downgrade baptism from a sacrament to an ordinance, in other words, they take a practice that to most other traditions is a means of grace, though it doesn't save us, and strip it down to be something that Jesus commanded, so must simply be obeyed, pro forma. So even when it isn't given much thought or care, a believer's baptism by immersion would be considered more genuine by many Baptists than a baptism by sprinkling or pouring, for instance. Now, I should say that I've been a Baptist my whole life and still consider myself one. But as I say, Baptists who are more strict than myself are often less willing to recognize anything other than full immersion as true baptism despite investing it with less theological weight. And this is, there is a good reason for this. It's because they're utterly committed to making sure that the symbol of Christ's death and resurrection is clear, that a visual representation of dying and rising is obvious. That's a good goal. But Bethesda's long-standing documents state that we are committed to baptism by immersion, but they leave room to allow us to recognize other forms. And this is a matter of wisdom. On the other hand, Bethesda's documents seem to allow less leeway about the question of believer's baptism because, as we saw last week, we believe that being baptized into Jesus Christ is not a rite of passage, not something undertaken to gain access to society, but a conscious rejection of the world's systems, a plunging of your whole self into God's kingdom, into God's plan, pattern, and persona to fulfill all righteousness. True citizens of God's kingdom will always be seen by the world as subversive, since their primary allegiance is to him and to his church, not to the human institutions that societies construct to safeguard their security. That's why in any age, when Christians have been persecuted, they're usually accused of sedition. In other words, they're perceived to be untrustworthy and accused of being a threat to society 
which is ironic given the fact that they are often the most selfless contributors to the good of their neighbors. Bethesda's elders have long felt that it's the better part of wisdom to strongly encourage every believer if they've only been baptized as babies into another church to take the plunge as fully-fledged citizens of God's kingdom. So I'd also encourage you, I would encourage you, if that's your personal situation, to be baptized once more in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This time not merely having those words passively spoken over you, but through the prophetic sign of being immersed, actively demonstrating that you are united to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That you intentionally identify and consciously embrace Jesus and his kingdom. Turn away from the world's priorities. Oftentimes, people who were baptized as infants worry that being baptized again as an adult will offend their families, that it implies a rejection of what their parents undertook in faith. But the disciples in Ephesus, when they joyfully took Paul up on his offer to baptize them again, weren't repudiating their previously faithful experience. They weren't saying that their earlier baptism was meaningless or that it was not important to their spiritual development. They simply acknowledged that their understanding had been partial, and they now eagerly consented to the opportunity to show the world that it was now whole. In the same way, mature believers who consent to being baptized again here at Bethesda celebrate the heritage that has brought them to this point while rededicating themselves to fulfilling all righteousness. But these difficulties, as much as anything, show how faithful baptizing and faithfully being baptized rests on grace. First and foremost, grace in the context of baptism means that those who've been baptized by immersion as believers into Jesus Christ should never feel that they have to be baptized again. As we said last week, baptism is not what cleanses or saves us. But the baptism of others, whenever we witness this, remains a means of grace and a sign of grace to all of us, since we are joined through Christ with those who are being baptized. We participate in baptism by proxy. We're reminded of our own salvation, and we receive the blessing of God's acceptance anew. As we saw earlier, grace has been built into baptism from the very beginning. In order to baptize Jesus, John had to accept that his own understanding was partial. And he also had to trust the one who stood in front of him in order to give way to him. And he did so, not ever having the opportunity to see what Jesus did or was going to do on the cross. Baptism always requires that one or more person will let it be so now. But we always do so in deference.
to our King. If you are a believer filled with the Holy Spirit and yet you've not been baptized as an adult, consider this command from Jesus. Let it be so now. Give way. Let go. Or maybe there are people here who are confused about the language I've been using, drawn from the book of Acts, who don't know what it means to receive or be baptized by the Holy Spirit, to be given the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Maybe that's you. Let it be so now. Give way. Let go. Talk to me or Mark afterwards sometime later this week. Or maybe you were listening before to the story of Simon, and you were convicted that your heart, like his, is still captive to sin, full of bitterness. Give way to Jesus this instant. Let it be so now. Let's pray. Let it be so now, Lord Jesus. Come, flood our heart with the water of life. Flood the hearts of those, Lord, who have been reluctant to follow you into baptism by immersion as an adult, as a believer in Christ. Flood the hearts of those who aren't sure whether they've been baptized by the Holy Spirit or are struggling still with what it means to look like Jesus more and more each day, who don't see that process happening. Their heart feels dull the daily grind of faith is overwhelming to them because they have not yet been filled with your grace, with your spirit who brings new life. That though nothing is ever easy it is sure when empowered by the Spirit of God. Lord, flood the hearts of those whose hearts are still captive to sin, still full of bitterness, anger, ambition, greed, hatreds, who are holding on to grudges who have not put their money to death. Lord, help us to perish in you, to put our desires, our idols, to death in you. Make us die to you, in you, and make us alive again. In your name I pray, amen.
thank you for joining us this morning. Just a reminder that uh, the Korean church downstairs is having a um, fundraiser now. Go get yourself a croffle and a coffee. Uh, I also wanted to remind you, too, that Mark and I will be available after the service for prayer. So if you would like prayer for healing, if you'd like to talk a little bit more about uh, what I preached about this morning, about baptism, any of those things, please come after the service and come to the front pews and we'll pray for you and talk with you. This is from the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. The man was reading from a passage of scripture, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life was taken away from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, whom does the prophet say this? About, about himself or about someone else? And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way, rejoicing. Go on your way, rejoicing. In the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. <laughs> 